I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything, yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's, it's so real to this day. I, I I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? (laughs) We did it guys. The one that came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. This is Spaces Podcast, where we aim to elevate the appreciation and understanding of the spaces we occupy every day. Hello, my name is Demetrius. This is Michelle. Hey, everyone. And you're listening to Spaces Podcast. Jason is out today, but thank you everyone for joining us again today. Today's conversation will be about shipping containers. And I wanted to bring this topic up over the, Michelle, over the last, I want to say six months, maybe even a year, I've been getting bombarded with friends and uh, clients about shipping container buildings people asking you know what does it take is it faster to build all the you know nuances of shipping containers have you been getting sort of that same uptick in conversation or is that conversation happening within the the company well it's not happening within my company but it is happening i think in the real estate circles uh, that I run in, particularly when it comes to the Urban Land Institute, so ULI, uh, which is a trade organization focused on land use and and spaces within real estate. So that that group has talked about it quite a bit. And I would also say that it's talked about, or where I hear it talked about, is in the context of affordable housing, you know, affordable housing and homeless housing, and that as a solution. And yeah, I, I actually would say I've probably, I think that conversation started probably more than 
six months or a year ago. I think it probably was more like two or three years ago where people were starting to say, well, have we considered this? And Yeah, it's it's definitely been around for a while. I can't really pinpoint exactly when it started, but it's it's been around for a while, but it, it's really hit the... Um, what do you call it? The zeitgeist. Um, just the average person knows about it and is asking about it now all of a yeah. sudden. So that I thought it was interesting and figure we should probably focus on it or do an episode on it now uh, since it's so much in the forefront. Um, in the news you're seeing with the recent COVID situation, there was a lot of uh, proposals for emergency uh, hospital units made out of shipping containers and then people were making, actually making luxury homes out of them, uh, schools, retail spaces. I don't know if you've been to, there's a, a campus or a, a office park called Intersect on, what is it, Jamboree and Maine, or not Jamboree, uh, Von Carmen in Maine. Yes, yes, I have been there, yep. So in their plaza, they have a bunch of little shipping containers that are... Yeah that are um, like a restaurant and a coffee shop or something like that. Um, yeah. So it, it's becoming to sprout up everywhere. Well, you just reminded me actually. So you asked initially, has our company talked about shipping containers? And I was thinking of it in the context of using that as a type of, of development or property that we're going to build. And it's too far outside of what we do. But um, I was reminded as you were talking about Intersect that actually in in the very early years um, of City Ventures' existence, we actually used shipping containers for all of our model home complexes. And what was neat about that is you could have a, a shipping container outfit it so it felt like a very comfortable, you know, built-out space. And then once it was done or once that project was sold out, you simply move that shipping container onto the next project down the road. And so you had sort of this mobile uh, sales office that wasn't like a sales trailer because, you know, sales trailer sometimes feels more like a, a mobile home or a temp, like a porta, like a portable classroom type of thing. But the shipping container, you could actually make it look really trendy and have it blend in well. It just, you know, looked well, it looked good on a construction site. So, yeah, we actually did use shipping. I was reminded of that as you were talking about Intersect. Yeah, I, I think it definitely can be used in that sense. I can also see it in... Um, in different communities as sort of a community center um, yeah. within development. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of opportunity for it. Um, and we have a guest today who's going to, we're going to first dig into a little bit of the history and try and pinpoint exactly when this kind of started, this concept started. Um, and then we have a guest who's going to join us to talk about a project called Hope on Alvarado. Uh, it's an LA it's a facility for homeless uh, individuals in Los Angeles. Um, so our next guest is an architect and associate principal at KTGY. He holds a Master of Architecture degree from Rice University and a Bachelor of Civil Engineering degree from Villanova. With over 20 years of award-winning design work ranging from $300 million multifamily and high-rise projects to $2 million shell retail buildings and custom homes, he knows what it takes to bring innovative yet practical ideas to reality. Please help me welcome Mark Oberholzer. Mark, 
Thank you for Hi, joining Demetrius. us. As you were introducing that, I was thinking, gosh, who is that? You know, it sounds so great. <laughs> Doesn't sound like me very much. But anyway, uh, thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. Uh, so we are discussing shipping container buildings and specifically the Hope on Alvarado project, which turned out great from what I saw online, uh, renderings and images. Uh, so congratulations on that. I'd like to dig Thank into you. that a little bit more. But to start, you want to give our uh, our audience kind of a a breakdown of what, like if an alien came to this planet and was curious what a shipping container building is, kind of describe what that is. Oh, yeah, sure thing. And um, I would say that maybe the broadest category is call it modular. And within modular, there are subsets of repurposed shipping containers, purpose-built steel modular that's like built-in shipping container factories, but was never a shipping container. Um, and then there's kind of purpose-built modular steel and wood that has nothing to do with shipping containers. And so I kind of got started in this um, on, on the Hope on Alvarado project in 2016. And really, that was my first entry into modular and uh, have learned a lot since. But the project, you know, just to say what it is, it's in the Westlake neighborhood of Los Angeles, and it's a supportive housing project. So that means basically uh, homeless people, formerly homeless people, get to live there um, in little apartments and have social services and caseworkers there to kind of help them get back on their feet and uh, mainstreamed. Okay. Now, before you finish up that description, I want to give the listeners a little bit of an understanding of where shipping containers have come from. And to do that, you got to go back in time. Nineteen thirty-seven. On a New Jersey pier sat Malcolm McLean, a North Carolina truck driver who came up with an idea that would revolutionize cargo handling around the world. At the time, transferring cargo from ships to trains was a slow process with major delays. Larger ships would take around a week to unload, then reload. While spending much of his day waiting on the pier to deliver cotton bales on his truck, it suddenly occurred to McLean would it not be great if my trailer could simply be lifted up and placed on the ship without its contents being touched? He then worked with an engineer, Keith Tantlicher, to develop a primitive form of what we now know today as the shipping container. They were strong, standardized, stackable, easy to load and unload. To help analyze how we've come to use shipping containers in construction today, I spoke with Amanda Gattenby, Vice President of Development at Crate Modular, a leading manufacturer based in Southern California that delivers container-based accessory dwelling units, multi-unit housing, and school buildings. Well, containers are usually one-way trip. Foreign countries would rather pay to send another full container of goods to us rather than pay to ship an empty back. So 
there's a lot of them available. It's an available resource. And then they are steel building blocks. So they're very strong. I think people recognize that early on that it's basically a volumetric module that you can adapt and they stack very easily. They stack 10 high on cargo ships. So I think a lot of people started figuring out to use this available resource as a building block. Despite the growing popularity, there were unforeseen impacts from the development of shipping containers. Increased efficiency decimated labor needs in the industry, and the imbalance in importing and exporting led to a surplus of empty containers, which are not easily recycled. In 2012, there was an estimated 5 million empty shipping containers left in the U.S. Now, at the time of shipping containers' growth, there was a growing need for housing. As soldiers returned from World War II, assembly line construction techniques had emerged and concepts of modular construction, like the case study homes, were explored. Shipping containers usually came in two sizes, either 20 feet by 8 feet or 40 feet by 8 feet. The smaller of the two equals about 160 square feet of living, while the larger gets you about 320 square feet of living. There are also two variations in height, 8.5 feet or 9.5 feet. It made sense that the strong, standardized, stackable, and easily transported units would eventually arise as a housing solution. But when it comes to the actual concept of using shipping containers for construction and housing, official credit gets a bit muddy. The military made these containers an indispensable transport tool as they were used to ship supplies to troops and bases overseas during the Vietnam War. They also used them as emergency shelters because they could be easily and quickly fortified for protection and security. On October 12, 1962, Innsbrensen Company Incorporated filed a patent titled Combination Shipping Container and Showcase, which stated that shipping containers can be used as exhibition booths when companies are touring and showcasing their products. In the 1970s, UK architect Nicholas Lacey wrote in his thesis on the concept of reusing shipping containers for habitable dwellings. The film Space Rage from 1985 used shipping containers to make numerous buildings on set, but it was the first official record of a shipping container home that went to Philip Clark. On November 23, 1987, he filed a patent called the Method for Converting One or More Steel Shipping Containers into a Habitable Building. Clark was presented with the approved patent on August 8, 1989. By 1994, the first publication to mention buildings with shipping containers came from Stuart Brand, an American writer who published a book titled How Buildings Learn. From that point, this method gained momentum. But because it is still relatively new, not all local jurisdictions allow or are equipped to review and permit shipping container construction. However, as Amanda explains, the factory-built process that Crate provides can deliver unique benefits for this method. A lot of people who did site-built, which is where the same as construction for the last 200 years, they decide to build the building at the place where the building's going to live right? Makes sense. But you run into issues with building code and inspectors and every inspector may have a different opinion. Every jurisdiction may have a different opinion. And so going to a factory built modular model kind of removes that because we have a state approval 
all of that's done at the state level. So not every single little jurisdiction has to learn about it. Um, it's already taken care of and, and inspected and improved at the state level. So then the inspectors can just concern themselves with what's happening on the site. So we submit plans to say, this is what we want to build. And then the state reviews the plans. And then the plans have to say manufactured by crate because we're an approved manufacturer. So they know who we are. We're basically giving them the shop drawings for the building that we're going to manufacture. They approve them based on building code, Title 24, ADA accessibility, all of the standard plan reviews are still in place, but it happens at the state level. And then they send inspectors to our factory while we're building it to observe and inspect all of the work that's going on in factory. And then there will still be a local plan check, uh, but it's very abbreviated and it's site specific. There's basically a site plan that has the parking, the ADA path of travel, the setbacks, and then there's a grayed out box on the site where the building goes. And it says, see state approved plans attached. And then our package is like attached as an exhibit instead of the local jurisdiction reviewing every single sheet in the plan set. You said abbreviated, so your plan check process should be much faster. And less expensive. They cannot charge plan check fees for what they do not plan check. When considering direct costs, it's not clear cut that shipping container construction is the affordable way to build, but they can be. For reference, the estimated cost of a raw container can range from $1,400 for small containers to up to $6,000 for a larger, brand new 40-foot container. The clear advantage is in the cost savings from its speed to delivery. We were approached by a city on how we can get a building out quickly. And we built a 150-bed homeless shelter. 15,000 square feet. It was produced in four months in the factory and it was set on the job site on the foundation in four days. Because of the varied uses of containers, it is important to understand how to properly sanitize and prepare a container for reuse. It is also good practice to understand where your container comes from to mitigate the need for extensive preparation. We're very picky about our containers. Because there are so many available, we take the top 1% of the containers. We only use one-way dry goods only. Every container has a serial number. You can actually track and see what was in it, when it was built, when it left its country of origin, what was in it, when it got to the Port of Los Angeles, what happened after that. And so there's a lot of visibility and a lot of compliance and testing that you actually don't get in traditional building materials. Our containers are heavily inspected and certified like five or six times before they even reach us. And your two by fours are not. Many times by the time the container hits our factory parking lot, they're only 90 days old. Container manufacturing companies will often have their in-house design teams particularly structural engineers, to facilitate the development of each unit and system of units. We have an in-house design team that basically draws what I call the shop drawings for the building, which is the modular part that we build in the factory and the foundation. That's what gets checked by the state. Our team can crank those out and they're production-minded. But we need to be guided by 
either the customer or their design team. And this is when it's really great to work with architects and all different types of architecture firms. And we basically say, okay, here's our product. What do you want to do with it? And then they kind of design and then give us their design concepts and what they want to do. We talk about the feasibility of that. And then we basically turn out the shop drawings that match their vision. So it's a really great way to work with outside design teams. We're not replacing contractors. We're not replacing architects. Um, we want to work with everybody. There's a place for everybody at the table. And we're a new building method. So it's really fun and exciting to see what kind of like innovative things that designers come up with. Yeah. Do you have a uh, structural engineer that's part of your team? We do because the containers have their own sort of set of structural specs. Um, and that's really key to container building is the sheer walls and how high we can go and where we put the steel and the posts. And so we really heavily, heavily rely on our amazing structural engineer. Historically, there have been two major hurdles to adoption of shipping containers and at a greater sense, modular building methods, startup difficulties and aesthetics. You can easily find critiques labeling the methods as harsh, short-sighted, and a landscape that suggests a temporary world. However, technology and expertise has greatly improved the aesthetic delivery and variation of this method. Furthermore, the shipping container building method has clearly arisen out of a need in our society and has a place to address major issues that we are facing, from homelessness and emergency shelters to rapid delivery and affordable housing. We are really a fast approaching. I say modular years are like dog years, right? There was a very large modular project in the city of Los Angeles called Star Apartments. You know, it had never been done really before at that scale. And they did it with city money and it was a whole thing that ended up being the most expensive apartment building ever built at the time. And everybody said, well, this isn't an answer. But I like to, to say what my friend Steve from American Family Housing used to say is the first big screen TVs were very large and very expensive and now they're very thin and hang on the wall. Yeah. I know you guys are doing stuff for the coronavirus. What are you guys doing with that? We came up with an emergency shelter that's single occupancy. All the traditional homeless shelters have like 100 people in a room sleeping in bunk beds. So this is not good for a pandemic. So we created single occupancy, like a bedroom and a bathroom inside a container. They have FRP on the wall so they can be sanitized between occupants and their temp, they can work on tanks and generators. And then later they can be repurposed for housing. Now. Container modular is just a building method. We build schools, we build housing, we build homeless shelters, we build a bougie bed and breakfast at a winery, we build beer gardens, we're doing a Dunkin' Donuts drive-through. So if you can build it, you can build it with container modular. So the success of the project has a lot to do with choosing the correct method for the correct project. So the original in 2016, the developer, who's you know a very visionary guy, or a group of people really, came and said, 
hey, we want to do a shipping container building. And I told him what I thought was the truth at the time, which is, no, you don't. It's going to take longer <laughs> and be more expensive. It just popped out of my mouth because I've kind of felt like it was true. Yeah. And they said to me, well, we want to try it anyway. And, and I'm like, fine, with that caveat, let's do it because it's kind of cool and exciting. Hey, Mark, yeah. what year was that about? Uh, that was 2016. Okay. Yeah. And so you're thinking, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, if it's so great and fast, how come it's just been four years, you know, and, and to, to get the building built, right? Part of that is LA. It's complicated, but mostly it's because it's, it really is a story of saying, Hey, we're going to try this, trying and failing, trying and failing, trying and failing and figuring it out along the way, which has been very interesting and fascinating. Has that developer kind of committed to um, shipping container construction? And, and that's been sort of their their goal is to figure this out? Yeah. And they're a developer that kind of came with a, again, it's a kind of a group of developers, but some of them have public policy backgrounds and have a frustration with how long affordable housing takes to get built. And of course, their first project took a long time too, when it's all said and done from the you know moment it was thought of. But really the sort of mission of doing more housing faster and better was really their driving force. And, you know, unlike most lessons that you learn in life, which you never get to apply again, this team really has learned a lot of lessons through Hope on Alvarado and has five more projects in the pipeline that are similar. And kind of we imagine, because we've been on the ground working with the system and that and by the team, I mean the developer, I mean all of the architects, the manufacturer and the contractor have really learned together and are very optimistic to reduce the time and reduce the cost in each successive project. Yeah. Can you describe a little bit about a little more about the project itself? How many units, um, kind of what size are those units? Some of those details? Oh, sure. So there are, there are basically uh, 84 units in the building. It's five stories total. There's four levels of uh, units over one level of community spaces, a little bit of parking and support services. And the base of the building isn't modular. You know, it's, it's all, it's like a site built podium, basically. So mm -hmm. it's a podium building uh, with four levels of steel modular. And the units are a mixture of 400 square foot studios and 480 square foot one bedrooms. So they're definitely um, on the small side, uh, but that's because they're, they're intended really for single, uh, a single occupant in each unit. Is each unit one shipping container? No, that's interesting. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a, I could spend an hour just on that, Michelle. So basically the studios are two and a half shipping containers wow. and the, the one bedrooms are three shipping containers. So, you know, the basic unit in this project is the sort of eight foot wide by 20 foot long unit to start with. Now, what we realized is, so that's a 20 foot deep unit and you basically are add eight feet in width until you get the size you want. The interesting thing is that we realized right away, well, we could make them 25 feet long and have the 20 foot depth for the unit plus a five foot corridor. And then we said, no, we should make them 45 feet long where we have part of a unit corridor, part of a unit. So more and more, you know, what's the biggest piece of the building we could make as one module. 
And that's really the direction. That's maybe lesson number one that we learned. Uh, oh, lesson zero, though, I would say that we learned is we did originally try to use literally use shipping containers. I mean, that's the best case scenario, right? Because we import more than we export. It comes in these shipping containers. You know, if you drive to the port in Long Beach or LA, you just see them stacked everywhere. Um, and, and there was, there is a local company that remanufactures shipping containers into units. Um, at the time that we were working with them, we started with them. I mean, that's the most sustainable, makes the most sense. They had a sort of a small capacity, have since grown into a larger company, but we pivoted to, to basically having purpose-made steel shipping containers made in a container factory, if that makes sense. That was a really long sentence. Hopefully, it <laughs> and that was that was less expensive than just finding existing shipping containers and repurposing those. Yes, it's counterintuitive, but taking the shipping container and cutting all the holes in it and kind of taking it apart and putting it back together, in a lot of cases, is more effort and and yeah. labor and cost than building it from scratch. But it is a question of scale. There's like, you know, smaller projects, like especially retail projects that use shipping containers and just modify them. And they're awesome projects. Yeah. Um, but if you have, you know, a Hope on Alvarado, I think it had 268 modules. So if you do something enough times, really, you want a factory to do it. You know, you really want to automate the process. Well, I was thinking about, as you were saying, that each unit is more than one shipping container. I started to think about the internal walls. So do you attempt to preserve the basic footprint of the of the shipping container and then just add drywall where necessary? Or do you sort of blow up the internal walls, including the ship what would be a shipping container wall? Do you see what I'm saying? And, and mm -hmm. then insert the drywall material inside. I would say it's mostly you leave what works in place and then you replace everything else because what shipping containers look like is it looks like that metal siding is structural. Really, it's not. The basic unit of the, of the, of the steel modular and the shipping container is a tube steel frame with tube steel beams around the top and the bottom. So that's the, the unit. And really, you can cut everything else away if you sure. want to. So it's, that's, that was part of the learning process. How much do we leave? And what you kind of realize, that's another reason that we sort of trended toward the purpose-made steel modular, because, you know, instead of tearing things out, we could just put them from the beginning where we wanted them. Sure. So the existing shipping containers that are out there will probably be for more one-off use of a single, uh, single standing structure um, as opposed to the purpose made? I would say that's how, uh, that's most typical right now. And I think what we're seeing is, at least from what I'm seeing now, the modular industry has, you know, existed for decades. But so what I'm seeing now are pretty interesting shifts in the manufacturing capacities of different regions and the interest in different, particularly coastal cities. Um, that is really growing and changing the industry. So the application of repurposed ship containers in the United States has been primarily smaller projects, but there are, you know, there are European projects that are pretty big scale mm -hmm. uh, that are built out of uh, literally shipping containers. Yeah. Hmm. 
Now, can you talk about that design process and how you sort of wrapped your mind around figuring out the different modules and then how that would come together to form the building that you ended up with? Yeah. And and boy, it's like, I would say it, you know, started as almost like, um, um, no, a nightmare is the wrong word, but it just, <laughs> um, imagine that you're not just designing a building, you're designing a building with a whole lot more constraints. And it's also just not a building, it's a manufactured product, right? So, you know, where the thermostat goes, you know, on this wall or that wall becomes a four hour meeting with the manufacturer, with the MEP, you know, with the, and, and um, it's almost like you had to kind of uh, grab on and, and see where it swung you kind of, you know, and it, it, for, you know, for, I mean, I've been involved in housing most of my career and it's sort of gradually the, the design process, you start with a sort of general concept and you get more and more specific as you go along. And it's a sort of slow process with modular. It's like, oh, no, you're right up front, you know, figuring all this stuff out in intense detail. And it's kind of it is fun to do that. What you need, though, is like everybody who, you know, the whole team has to be interested in doing that. That's what I feel like is sort of the most fun part is we're kind of engineers, architects, the manufacturer, we're kind of in each other's business, right? We say, here's what we want to do. They say, no, you can't do that. We say, why not? Why don't we try this? And they say, here's why. And it's this real collaborative process of design, which is, it's super fun, real engaging. Yeah. I think you hinted on some of it, but what was the more, what did you find more complex, the most complex about taking on a shipping container project? I would say that it involves thinking about how the pieces fit together, right? So it's not just, uh, hey, design the building, get the permit. It's, hey, design this part of the building, figure this out so it can be manufactured. But wait, there's more. How does it get attached when it's on the site? Right. And that's not all that I say that's, you know, interesting. I mean, like I said, I, I'm emphasizing the, I guess, the teamwork aspect of this because they're, you know, the very first time on the Alvarado site, you know, that day we were all there when the first, you know, module kind of got lifted up by a crane and swung into place. It was like, oh man, you know, is it going to work? You know, and it did, are the bolts going to line up and what's our contingency plan? And, I think that it's almost like designing it three times. It's designing it conventionally. It's designing how the pieces get built. And then it's designing how does it get connected on site? And some of those constraints, um, like how do you connect the plumbing stacks? You, know, you, you can imagine that, like architects imagine that in their mind all the time. But no, someone has to reach in somehow and connect them. You know, and it's, uh, it becomes such a more important factor when you're putting a finished unit into place. It's very interesting. Is there more uh, coordination, maybe speaking to the actual field team more about how they plan to actually assemble some of these things and run that piping and things like that? There is a lot more coordination with the on-site team. I mean, the, the construction team. And it, there's almost a, another big piece of the puzzle too, which is the logistics. And, and and I'm kind of riffing on on-site logistics, but also kind of the on-site logistics, right? There's there's that moment when the module shows up on a truck and the crane is there, 
but somebody has to figure out how that uh, busy lane of traffic gets um, closed off for 10 hours. And someone has figured out how is that getting from the port to a staging area to get prepped, to get put on the truck. And so what I, it was very eye-opening again, that first day when construction started on the modular part. Um, I think there were close to 60 people running around like crazy because there was the on-site crane crew. There was the crew on top of the podium getting ready to set the, uh, but, but there's also a support crew on a staging area too, as well. And then, and then the kind of contractors management team, um, it was really, um, it felt like a, like an orchestra, you know, kind of coming together. And, yeah. and I'm glad that I didn't have to conduct that one. You know, that was the contractor. <laughs> yeah. Who was kind of the lead in terms of, I mean, this, in many ways, the way you're describing this particular project, it, it feels like the learning curve was very steep and that maybe on this particular project, there weren't significant time savings or cost savings over just a traditional stick frame podium building, right? But I think the goal is that it becomes streamlined and it becomes something that's second nature and it becomes a really cost-effective and time-effective uh development solution. But on this particular project, I mean, who was kind of like the person that, or the company that sort of knew what the heck they were doing of how, how you actually attach these shipping containers and how you, you know, put MEP, uh, mechanical engineering, plumbing systems in place. Like, I mean, that's, that is, you know, and this is like my happiest moment when I can say there really wasn't one, you know, one person who you say was driving it, it really was real collaborative because so what KDGY did was basically, you know, have the design expertise, also the kind of permitting code, you know, there's, there's, you know, lots of things about fire ratings and UL listings and who permits what, who oversees what, and all those things that we're really good at. Then the, contractor and manufacturer had a guy who you know was in the factory and would kind of work with the shop drawings and bring that to the whole team and so it was also engineers with modular expertise structural engineer had significant modular expertise and manufacturing expertise so i'm very like super proud to be part of that team of experts, you know, and KDGY is one of the experts for sure, but it definitely was a, a team of experts. You talked a little bit about the timing and this project took three to four years or so. Yeah. And I think that, you know, let me talk about that. So basically that is deciding we want to do it. That's getting it entitled, which is in LA is his own thing. That's figuring out the first solution we were working with, the actual ship containers wasn't going to fly, looking for a new solution, recalibrating, revising to adapt to that uh, new manufacturer, and then collaborating for the first time with the team. So I guess that's almost three years. And then construction started in January of 2019. Um, the site work started. And at the same time, the prototype modules were being manufactured. So like the work work, uh, on-site and off-site work started in January 19th. And the plan was that in one year, we'd be up and running. But, you know, I think there's learning curve. There's that, I've heard about this pandemic thing. I don't know, <laughs> but 
that had some effect and you know um so we are now just about finished but it's been 18 months but you know to put it in perspective an urban podium i mean when we we talk about construction time to just in general rough order magnitude an urban podium is going to take maybe your best case is 18 months and depending on the size it can easily be 24 to 26 months of construction so with our collective learning curve with which you know with all of that in place you know we're still really not doing too badly in terms of time yeah and i i feel very confident and i think the rest of the team would agree is that we can build the next project faster and i i think the appropriate amount of time is probably 10 to 12 months for this that sort of five story urban podium which is really fast from maybe it doesn't sound fast but it, it is from design to complete construction no from starting construction okay construction time yeah, yeah. Did you have to have a place to stage the shipping containers or the parts that were coming in? And then related to time, once you got, once you got to the point where you were stacking shipping containers, how long was the actual stacking portion of the construction? Because I think your, your construction timeline starts with site development, right? Yeah, that's right. And, and it, you know, the, the site had a bunch of shoring and, uh, it wasn't a simple site. So, uh, yeah. the, the work on site took time. But to answer your question, the staging happened in two locations. So the modules arrived in the port of LA. The first place they went was to a storage yard next to the port, you know, where they basically each boatload that came in got stacked up there. So they were kind of like all stacked up waiting to be brought to the site when they're ready to come to the site then the contractor secured like two blocks away an empty lot and that was the sort of uh, prep and stage area so on that day there's a line of trucks from the storage facility near the port bringing them to the staging area they get kind of unwrapped and you know kind of prepped for the crane lift and then the truck pulls around to the site where there's this giant crane and lifts it into place. So there are four floors and it was one level per, per week, really. So, so about four weeks. The stacking portion was super fast. Totally. Yeah. And are you connecting as you go? Yes and no. So they're built like shipping containers. So they have those big fat corner castings on the bottom yeah. and that's a, a place to bolt. So they were, you know, when it gets lifted in there, they're bolted vertically, bolted horizontally. And then, so that's the, the, the immediate connection. And then the long-term connection in this case was a series of welding plates that kind of turn it into, by the time you connect all these welded plates, it kind of turns the whole thing into a giant moment frame. Okay. Mm. Yeah. So then were you, you were installing HVAC and all of the piping and everything after the fact. So you're not putting that in at the same time that you're stacking because the stacking is just this literal process of, you said four weeks, right? Yeah, that's right. Well, so the electrical, the HVAC, all the interior fittings, um, appliances, all of that is already in the unit. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they, they, that's, that's, I mean, that's one of the great things is that the only thing that was mostly left was the flooring not put in because it was like a plank laminate flooring. And so they would put in a kind of up towards the middle, but because you're connecting them, there's still some things in, that you do in the field. 
So it's really the field work is where you're connecting those modules, like fixing the dry sheetrock and things like that. And that's kind of what I was alluding to earlier. So, you know, the toilets, the sinks, they're all in there. All the plumbing is in there. What you're really doing and the risers are in there. But what you're really doing is connecting that complete unit plumbing system to the the main leaders and the main drains. So that that's that's happens simultaneously. You know, I mean, once they're once they start to be set, once you don't have a crane overhead, you can immediately just come in and kind of start connecting the electrical and the plumbing. Those are the main things and the sprinklers. Hey, Mark, I wanted to jump back to to break down the timing a little bit. One, I wanted to emphasize, I think we've mentioned it before on our show, but I wanted to emphasize how uh, how much of a bear it is to deal with L.A. City because <laughs> it takes a long time to get anything through L.A. So one, just to give everyone's a, head, a heads up as far as timing, uh, L.A. is a whole nother animal. Yeah. And, you know, it's I, I have mixed feelings about it because on the one hand, yeah, I mean, most of my work is in the city. Um, there are cases where entitlement can go quickly, but, you know, in general, the process is pretty slow, but it's slow for a lot of reasons that people have decided are important, like the, you know, CEQA <laughs> um, and involvement of stakeholders, neighborhood stakeholders, for, for better or worse. That includes NIMBYs and YIMBYs, right? But like people definitely have a voice, but taking the time to include those voices takes time, right? And so it's frustrating if you're a developer or an architect who wants to go fast. But, you know, there, I mean, there, there are reasons why it takes a long time. I mean, there was a, as you probably know, there was a code change implemented by the city in 20. 20 January. So the LA DBS Department of Building Safety got, you know, who knows, hundreds and hundreds of submissions in December, you know, to people trying to take advantage of the old code before the new one kicked in, including, you know, several of my own projects. And so then then the the um, building department looks like they're really slow. <laughs> well, really, I mean, whose fault is that exactly? You know, I mean, we're all in this together, I guess is my point. Also, to be fair to the city with the transit-oriented communities uh, ordinance and also some of the state bills that have come through recently have really expedited the approval process for the kind of housing that the city is so desperate for, affordable housing. Yeah. And then the other thing I wanted to mention on timing or get back to you on timing was do you think, because you guys had a hiccup with switching the manufacturing company, what do you think the timing would be second time around, knowing your manufacturer and having gone through it once? Uh, what, what would you foresee a possible cut down on time? If you are willing to stay by right, I mean, in a way, nothing is literally by right. You ask for permission you know, to build from planning, but if you stay within the keep within the rails. In other words, you don't ask for extra density. You don't need a concession like a concession on parking or you're not asking for a zone change or if you don't need anything but what's allowed by code, by the zoning code, um, then uh, it goes a lot faster. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it's, if it's under uh, 50 units uh, from a base density, then you don't go through site plan review in LA, which is a long process too. So the, this developer's approach has been, let's aim for the quickest path, not maybe 
the most we can uh, put on a site. Because if we, you know, if we said, hey, we could get more density, but you'd have to ask for this and this for planning, and that would be a little bit more of a public approval process, they say, eh, we'd rather have, you know, 5% fewer units, but get them out to market faster. So that's their approach. That's not a typical approach, but I I think a lot of people are doing that calculus. Developers um, are figuring out, is it, is it, maximum density I'm going to go for, or is it um, speed to market and accept a little less? Gotcha. Let's talk a little bit about money. Uh, I don't know how familiar you are with uh, the actual cost of construction. And then for this particular project, being that it's for homeless individuals, was there any sort of special um, grants and and funding that, that helped with that situation? Yeah, I can, I can speak to that. I'll, I'll give you like the speech that I say to all my clients, which <laughs> is I can give you like ideas about costs, but really you need to speak to a contractor, right? Yeah. That's so that's my disclaimer. Now that I've disclaimed, let me talk about costs. So, <laughs> um, you know, uh, and I, I start with kind of what's a typical, you know, and, and f- just say for LA, what's a typical like type three wood podium? You know, you see them everywhere, five stories of wood over two levels of parking or two and one one below grade maybe and those numbers that we're seeing come in on current projects are easily 400 to 450 a square foot meaning a square foot of livable space or rentable space however you want to think about it so that's an extremely high cost yeah um and uh and and so there's that right i think that's where you see in markets where that cost is so high that's where you see the greatest interest in alternative technologies, modular, proprietary structural systems, you know, those sorts of things. A lot of the hotbed of development is on the West Coast and to some extent on the East Coast as well. But that's because of the cost. It's mm-hmm. it's about cost. That's one of the biggest barriers to projects kicking off that controls rent costs, you know, or sales costs. And it's it's a big it's a it's a huge barrier. So the hope really is that the modular can be not just faster. I mean, that's great that it's faster, but that it would cost less. Right. And, mm-hmm. and I think that it's easy to beat under $450 a square foot. Like Hope and Alvarado does then cost that. Mm-hmm. Right. I think we're going to have like a round table meeting after when it's finished, like literally finished yeah. and go over that and talk about the next one. And, you know, Hope and Alvarado really opened my uh, experience and also my mind really to a lot of modular. And and so we've got now, KDGY has 17 different modular projects going, wow. I- including, you know, including wood modular, steel modular, all, all kinds of different projects, high rise modular. And I can say with confidence on cost that almost unilaterally across manufacturers, domestic, international, the sort of base cost per square foot of a finished module. So that's, that's you know, like the space you're going to live in or ask someone to live in. And that's built out, finished inside is $150 a square foot to $180 a square foot, depending on the finishes, right? Because, you know, it's like a high-end hotel is more. But that's an incredibly low number if you're in the world of $450 a square foot. What that doesn't include, though, are those 60 people running around that I was talking about <laughs> yeah. at Alvarado, right? That's, hey, it shows up. It's $150 a square foot. 
excellent. Now what? Right. So the lifting, the connecting, all of those things, that's where it gets a little fuzzier, you know, and I think that the it, it relies on the expertise and experience of the contractor. And I think in my talks, particularly with manufacturers, because that's really where a lot of the innovation is happening. I mean, in addition to architects, <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's not a ton of contractors out there with the experience of doing it. Everyone is interested in it, right? Because it's an, it's a developing technology. You know, it's a question, w will it replace all conventional construction? I think most people don't think it will, but I think it'll be an important tool, you know, another kind of construction, another how do you say arrow in the quiver, mm -hmm. right? In the affordability question. Yeah. Um, but there's not that much experience all told, you know, in across, across the country. Yes, there are notable projects, but not a ton of experience. So there's maybe in California, you know, all of the contractors with significant experience there, they would fit on this hand, yeah. right? It's very few. You know, that's a little bit of a cost factor too. Yeah. Um, the more people that do it, and, and, and sort of, if you want to say it this way, pay the price of entry by the dumb tax that you do the first time you do a project, we'll, we'll get more payoff, I think. Yeah. That's so that's a really long way of working my way around sort of answering your question on cost. <laughs> no, I <laughs> Is think. Is that good enough? Yeah. Yeah. That works. Right. I think you got us there. But that's, that's a great point about, you know, getting in early and paying the price for the payoff on the back end of, being an, an expert there. So what, one of the things that killed modular before what, cause this has been around for decades now, but one of the things that killed it before was concerns of the look repetitiveness, the um, very stringent kind of parameters that you have to deal with. What are your thoughts uh, as an architect on the design side and kind of your experience dealing with Hope and now 17 different projects? Um, what are you guys thinking as far as the ability aesthetically to deal with a modular project? Yeah, I would say that um, what's interesting is Hope on Alvarado looks like shipping containers, you <laughs> know, because that was sort of the original vision. And when the uh, developer came to us, and said, you know, just, you know, how would you do this? We said, well, we do a lot of housing and this, they come with metal walls and big windows. We like that just like it is. Why would we want to change that? You know, it's like, looks awesome. So um, we, that's kind of why we went with it. And also because why clad it again, right? For cost reasons. Mm -hmm. And they, this developer kind of feels like they're, you know, they're definitely trying to make a, you know, make a splash, make a statement. And so, but what we've discovered, because now we've got um, five more buildings with them, right, coming up, is that in each successive one, we have been thinking to ourselves, how many of these can you do, right? How, you know, I mean, uh, the that look of shipping containers is having a moment mm -hmm. and has had a moment. And it's been a pretty long moment and it's awesome. But how many buildings could you build in the city before the city goes, no, thank you, no more, <laughs> right? And, you know, we all know there's pictures of international cities across the world that have built the same building, like 10 in a row. And you think like, whoa, that's not good policy, right? So even within this string of buildings that want to look modular, we have found ourselves with the client trending away from that vocabulary, you know? Um, so in 
including more um, uh, shading devices, including more manufactured, like custom canopies, because these are getting manufactured. So a lot of things that on a conventional project are a bigger ask really aren't that big of an ask um, from a from a metal fabrication standpoint. So, but we're, we're trending away, I think for that, that reason, you know, and then working with um, other clients and other developers, what we have um, kind of discovered, and I would say through a high rise hospitality project, really, and this is a building that, that we almost have a permit for. I've got a lot of almost permits, you know, <laughs> a lot of things have slowed down because of the pandemic and getting the actual permits, but this is a high-rise hotel in Hollywood, and if I showed it to you, you wouldn't even know it was modular. You wouldn't even think about it. It doesn't have a modular look to it at all. And so we have a couple of hospitality projects like that, and they're, they're modular for economic reasons. They're not modular for a modular look, you know, which is real interesting to me. And I've been convinced now that really you can do almost whatever you want with modular. I think that if you're trying to hit the lower end of the cost spectrum, yeah, repeat more, stick to the basic module as much as you can. But I mean, honestly, we're looking at with um, other clients, wider modules and longer modules, you know, um, in varying the width because they're custom made. So why couldn't it be 11 feet wide? Mm -hmm. and, and 11 feet wide is more like a room width. So there's the potential, I mean, Michelle, to your point of, using that wall where you putting it where you want it and that's where it is right rather than having to move it because it's inconvenient so a uh, long-winded answer again but basically i see really a, an immense amount of flexibility in the aesthetics uh, of this yeah i was gonna ask are there any societal changes that in your mind are gonna make um, shipping containers construction either more viable or less viable well, I think one of the biggest driver to innovation is necessity, right? And the increase and in the um, acceleration of construction costs in, in coastal markets has been unprecedented and unrelenting. And so people are going like, I can't, I'll never build another building if I've got to pay that much, right? Or no one will ever be able to afford to rent that apartment, right? So what's the solution? And the solution is, let's see if we can figure out a better way to do some of this. And and that's what's driven a lot of the innovation. What I think is what could stop that is something like a recession where all of a sudden construction costs collapse, right? And then conventional is way more, you know, if the cost of conventional construction dropped 25%, right? All of a sudden, why, you know, I'll, I'll stay out of your conference room, KDGY, you know, I'll just skip the collaboration part and just build a conventional building and be faster, easier. So there's that. Got it. But I think there's a bigger trend going on in the United States demographically. And I'm, I see that really just from the work that, that I see going on, you know, in, it just in my career, which has been basically building for class A, you know, sort of market or the upper end of market, you know, luxury condos, central located or affordable housing, homeless, uh, supportive housing, but both needed arguably, but there is the missing middle, which everyone, you know, that's the word. I, I say that now and everybody knows what that is. And um, there's a huge piece of the country, the dem whatever, the population that really don't have 
buildings that are kind of building for them. And that's another kind of crisis, right? So, and, you know, one of the projects I'm working on right now with KDGY is uh, with a national developer who said, and, and they have been our profile of, of client, high-end, you know, luxury uh, towers, right? And they're saying, you know, we need, uh, we want to talk to you about modular. Let's work on some prototypes to hit that workforce housing, missing middle, whatever you want to call it, right? People that aren't, it's not subsidized housing, but it's people who are, I guess, more like architects who have normal salaries, <laughs> you know, need a place to live. So um, that's, I think, a, a growing realization in the marketplace and and realizing that, you know, the the maybe some of the higher returns on either end in terms of investment have more risk than you'd think to them, right? Yeah. And that there's there might be, there is, not might, there's a great opportunity for that. Uh, for housing aimed at the middle of the market, the, the so-called middle of the market. Yeah. Yeah. There's a few, a lot of huge luxury apartments that have gone up around us uh, where we are right now. And I'm just thinking, how are those things getting filled up? And are they going to get filled up, uh, especially in the near future, looking at what could happen to the economy? But uh, that's very interesting and a astute point to uh, to make. How do you see shipping containers uh, translating beyond this high density attached product? I mean, I think like on Hope on Alvarado, I think your density was over a hundred units per acre, right? Wasn't it close to like 190, 180? Mm -hmm. So that obviously was a very dense, you had some partial subterranean on the site, but how do you see shipping containers translating more to like a traditional neighborhood subdivision, single family detached, if at all. I mean, maybe that's not the right solution. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because I've had a couple discussions over the last day, uh, last two days, literally with, with manufacturers who are saying, you know, they're, I mean, not at this exact moment. I mean, single family housing is paused for obvious reasons, but in most markets, but, um, you know, they're saying there are a lot of single family houses and townhouses and walk-ups built um, in this country, and they are pretty much built like they've been built for the last, right. you know. And so I, I know that other folks at Katie Joy have been involved with some panelization uh, demonstration projects for single family houses. And I, I think that's, you know, panelization is like, no one talks about that in urban multifamily because it's like, of course, it's penalized, right? I mean, that's just how you do it. So it's not an innovation. But right. in terms of single family, it's like, yes, there's more and more panelization. And I think that I'm seeing more interest, more bubbling, I guess, of the cauldron of alternate structural systems. And I think the the key thing is to make shipping containers or purpose-built steel modular or even wood modular, the, the key to making that work for single family is the scale and repetition, right? So there's there are plenty of examples of really wonderful um, uh, modular one-off houses, you know, somebody's house in Santa Monica or, you know, on the de in the desert or something, and, you know, that they get in the architectural press because they're real elegant, beautiful. But they are one-offs. So they cost, you know, they're not going to, they cost more really than a traditional bill just because they're, because right. of what they are. But you'd have to say, hey, we're 
kind of having a visionary uh, land plan here. We're going to get all the builders on board with doing it this way and build enough to make it worthwhile to manufacture. And that brings up lots of other questions like, well, you know, I mean, some of the maybe most maligned developments, suburban developments have been the ones where there is too much repetition, right? That feeling of living in a something that isn't unique at all, where every house is the same. It can be monotonous. So, yeah. So, and, and also there's also, I think the, the sort of labor question too. There is a lot of pretty low paid labor available in non-coastal markets. And whether that's good or bad is a whole other podcast probably, mm-hmm. but you know, that stunts the, I guess the, cause it, cause it's an economic barrier to manufactured housing. Right. Hmm. Meaning that maybe the shipping container manufactured housing works better in a high cost market. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Now what's kind of interesting though um, is, and it, this is an aspect that that really I'm just thinking about because of the pandemic is that in a in a manufacturing situation you have better um, control right over the environment you know, if it's indoor uh, or even if it's an outdoor factory it's like you you have more of a process so is it safer in a manufacturing environment I know it's better work conditions for sure in a manufacturing environment um, so you know. Could there be a future? Should there be a future where less happens on site, more happens in factories, and they're actually better jobs? Right. Again, that's where that's where I like get on thin ice as an architect because it's like that's things I don't really know about. But you know, like most architects, that never stops me from wondering about them. So and opening my my big mouth, yeah. yeah, that's funny. Are there other countries? that are doing this well or do you think the united states is sort of leading in the effort to use this as an innovative sort of new building type uh no i think we're a little bit behind i think okay. uh, i think modular in europe is pretty advanced um and and modular is um in in a lot of countries for certain kinds of housing a given you know, and it maybe it isn't the best housing in the world, but it's like, uh, you know, it's definitely implemented widely. Let me put it that way. Yeah, for modular in general, uh, I think you're familiar with the company Integra actually was started in Europe and then uh, they've launched a, their brand here. And I think they're doing very well um, with that. But uh, yeah, it's it seems that Europe is very far in advance of, of what we have so far, but slowly trying to catch up. Mark, what's one thing that, that you and, and the KTGY team has learned uh, about shipping container buildings that you would pass on to anyone that's thinking about taking it on, um, whether it's targeted towards the construction side or the design side or the developer side? Um is there any one thing that kind of stands out in your mind as like critical information about shipping container buildings? Yes. So I would say that um, you have to be prepared for a little bit of a different process uh, as a, as a developer um, or as a really anyone who's going to get involved. So there's aspects of the funding that are different because, you know, you're kind of building 
on-site simultaneously while you're building off-site. So you have a lot more upfront money, really, you know, to put down a deposit on the modules. So there's a little bit of a different cash flow scenario. I guess that's a non-trivial detail, but really I think the other is that the at this point, anyway, in my opinion, that the owner, the developer has to be much more hands-on and engage with the contractor, manufacturer, architect, and even uh, consultants to a degree that is uh, a lot more collaborative, a lot more hands-on, and um, and it's fundamentally different, you know, than uh, than a than a typical team structure. And the AIA came out with the sort of uh, IPD integrated project delivery that was, um, you know, I mean, it's not like it's not a thing, but I mean, it was a bigger thing, um, you know. 15 years ago. And I'm not saying these are none of the contracts that I'm involved with in are literally IPD, but it has that feeling to it where you really are, you know, no one gets to say, you know, that's not really my scope. You know, I, I don't have, no, it's like, no, we're working this out. You have to be, you have to come to the table. And I think as a developer or owner, you have to think, yeah, I'm here not just to score a low uh, price and a quick construction time once, but I'm here to really profit over multiple projects is probably at this moment, uh, what I would say is maybe the best approach for, um, or advice I would give right now in the future, you know, I kind of feel like there are big trends happening and it, and a lot of this, a lot of modular, um, construction technology is developing and, and coalescing. And so it might be so common soon that yeah we're not all in each other's business that it kind of gets in a rhythm and is more absorbed into a typical project delivery process that's probably what'll happen because you can only get in people's business for so long before they get tired of you um but also just till everybody kind of knows it and it's like you don't have to talk to someone about wood framing like everybody knows that everybody gets it or steel or concrete it's like you know there's nothing to talk about that's just what you do and i think that's probably the trajectory or maybe the most optimistic trajectory um that we're on what the time frame is that's really the the, uh, the open question got it well thank you so much mark this is extremely informative um so anytime someone asks me about shipping containers i'll just send them this link awesome <laughs> Well, it's been really nice talking with you both. Yeah. Um, so thanks so much. That's all for this episode, but keep listening for a sneak peek of our next episode. This show is part of the Gable Media Network. You can check out similar content at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. You can help support what we're doing here by leaving a five-star rating and a review on your preferred podcasting app. It helps others find us, and your support is the only way that this show grows. And don't forget to connect with us through our Facebook community, Instagram, and see the random thoughts and articles that we share on Twitter and LinkedIn. But before you go, next time on Spaces Podcasts. Santiago, it's the largest park in Latin America. It's the fourth largest park in the world. Okay. Well. <laughs> so I think just by scale, there, there was like already an amazing opportunity there, right? It's a win as an opportunity. Why is it successful? Well, all the program and the features that it has kind of were the, the ingredients for that success. 
we think about the park, I mean, Encourage is fun because it has a lot of program from the pools. Like it has a purpose in a way for people to go there. It is cultural, has a cultural component that brings also people there and essentially connects people to nature in a large scale. And it has great access. Um, that cable car, I think it's, it's really key to make people come from the city to there without having to kind of have that disconnection of like getting into a car. So I think all of these ingredients are really what makes that part incredibly successful. And thank you again for spending some time with us. Talk soon. Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host Patrick McLaney, FAIA former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise. From 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.